Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome everybody to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and the first of two episodes on the history of the Battle of Trafalgar. Today we are going a bit grisly and gruesome by exploring the history of Nelson's death at Trafalgar from a medical perspective. To find out more, I spoke with the one man who knows more about the medical details of Nelson's death than anyone else. His name is Michael Crumplin, and he is a retired consultant general and upper gastrointestinal surgeon. For over 50 years, Mick has taken an interest in military, naval and surgical history. Although specialising in the French Wars, 1792 to 1815, he has also has interest in earlier and later conflicts. He writes and lectures nationally and internationally and also advises students, researchers, authors and the media. He has published five books, many articles, and has acted as medical advisor for diverse media programmes and publications. His principal purposes with history are to promote interest in the human cost of war and the evolution of healthcare in the armed services. He is an honorary curator and archivist at the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And what he tells you about Nelson's wound received on board the decks of HMS Victory from a sniper high in the rigging of the French ship Redoutable will probably make you feel sick. So you may need to sit down for this one and get a nice glass of water ready. And here is Mick. Mick, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, Sam, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Um. Let's start more broadly with the Royal Navy rather than just talking immediately about Nelson. The Royal Navy, obviously, a particularly high risk service. What were the great threats to sailors and marines at sea during the French wars? Well, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, shipboard accident, foundering, drowning, fire, climate threats, uh, deficiency diseases, infections and, of course, battle injuries. But it's interesting that of of, of around 103,000 sailors and marines that perished in these wars against France, only around 6%, 6,000, died from battle trauma. That's a tiny amount. I think people will be very surprised by that. Were you surprised when you discovered that? 
Yes, I was. In the army, the equivalent is 20% die of battle injury, so it's rather three times that of the navy. Mm. And what were, what, were these, what were these kind of diseases that people were getting then? What was so dangerous to them? Well, um, there were infective diseases in the West Indies, malaria, yellow fever. Uh, dysentery was universal, really. It ha- happened to all sailors and soldiers. And this is due to uncleanliness. And there was typhoid and, of course, typhus when there was crowding and uh, a lot of louse uh, infection and uh, of the clothing and so forth. So, yes, and, of course, seasonal illnesses, pneumonia and so forth. So there were a lot of challenges to men. Yeah. Today we're going to talk specifically about wounds because Nelson's such a, a, a fantastic subject to talk about because he was injured seemingly more than many other people. Um, why, why was he so susceptible to being injured in battle? Well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously, if you read uh, many biographies, as I have, uh, you, you fully understand quickly that he was widely involved all over the world in his campaigning. His travels took him to at-risk areas, both from disease and injury. But his fatalistic and extremely bold leadership style and his personality, being with his men, um, made him often eschew standard tactics. And uh, he, for instance, often led boarding parties, uh, took part actively in combined operations, and set very many bold examples to his men. And a close involvement and a relationship with his crews uh, put him in the firing line for disease, climate and, of course, injury. Yeah. I was always interested with Nelson that he, um, he, he suffered from uh, malaria, which he, he got early on in his life. Um, so that's one I know about. But what, what other sort of illnesses plagued him during his career? Well, I suppose if you count seasickness as an ailment, uh, that was often the <laughs> you bane, definitely the, <laughs> bane of his travels. Uh, he suffered a lot with colds and sore throats uh, and did, you know, write quite freely about his diseases and, and, and challenges. And he had, of course, reactive depression and anxiety, as many men would do, but he was quite open about that too in his letters. Um, And he was very down, for instance, after losing his right arm at Tenerife and after his eye injury in Corsica. Uh, And his anxiety before fleet actions and his concerns over money, appropriate rewards and Emma Hamilton's future uh, were quite understandable and pressing challenges to a man of his burdens and responsibilities. Um, Yes, he suffered from recurrent attacks of malaria, uh, dysentery, Uh, failing vision. Uh, Of course, he had that injury to his right eye in Corsica, but he he developed early cataracts. He had an oral epulis, which is a little fleshy lump in his mouth, which he was accused uh, of being venereal, which it certainly wasn't. He had that removed. He had typhoid, probably with a peripheral neuropathy after his uh, Nicaraguan adventures. Uh, and very nearly died. Uh, So that really took him months to get over. And, of course, he also suffered from occasional headaches and chest pains, which many people have speculated over. I think he suffered from reflux and esophageal spasm, giving him central chest pain. That was especially obvious before the Battle of Copenhagen. A a huge variety of ailments. Do you think he was troubled... um, It's going to be a tricky question, this, Mick. Do you think he was troubled more by his... Um, 
psychiatric problems than his physical ones. But I mean, you've just listed a whole host of very troubling physical problems. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, Anne Mary Hills is a, a GP and a Nelson expert in his uh, mental illness. I've spoken to her quite a lot. And I think uh, there is a lot of evidence that every time he got injured, he got very down. And I think that, uh, again, he expressed his feelings to Emma and others um, and his wife. Uh, and um, it was quite plain that his anxiety and depression were quite foremost uh, throughout his career, really. But I suppose these challenges and worries uh, were often experienced by many other naval officers, not just Nelson, but promotion, patronage, not getting the rewards he deserved, fights over prize money, they all got him down. And latterly, of course, he was so concerned and very worried about uh, his uh, the future of Emma and his daughter. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that his um, mental illness problems were, were, were linked to his physical ones as well. And it's, it's, mm. it's uh, probably unhelpful to try and divide those two up. Is that right? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, after his uh, relatively minor head injury and mild concussion after the Battle of the Nile, uh, a lot of people have blamed that head injury for causing his misjudgment, his uh, problems with uh, uh, the court of Naples and so forth. But he was in a very disparate uh, and uh, dichotomized society uh, and he was falling in love with Emma and he was exhausted after his Nile and the chase after the French fleet. So it's very difficult, as you say, to separate things and bl easily blame the head injury. But there were many other factors that would have taken Nelson in a psychiatric way. Yeah. While we're just talking about this before we go on to his physical wounds, it, he's a fascinating character because you can read him two ways. One of which is, is you read him almost as a as a deeply insecure boy. He's, he's almost like a child some, in the some way he reacts to things. But mm. in other aspects, he is, he is the most confident um, person that you've ever come across. And uh, to have those two in the same person, I think it makes him particularly fascinating. It is interesting, isn't it? Because he certainly had flashes of glory and uh, intent to defeat and uh, huge confidence uh, for the moment when it was needed. You're quite right. Yeah. So how many injuries did Nelson receive, or the ones we know about anyway? Well, the ones that are recorded were six in all, and the last one, of course, being fatal. Um, he had a minor cut on the back and bruising when he was uh, overseeing the bombardment of the town of Bastia in uh, Cap Course. In Calvi, he received a penetrating eye injury by a bit of grit, probably, causing damage to his iris, and it may well have cost him essentially his sight, although he always claimed he could have some vision in that eye, light and dark differentiation, for example. And, of course, as I said before, he gradually got cataracts and needed eye protection. At St Vincent, uh, when he crossed the St Nicholas onto the San Joseph Spanish ships during the Battle of Cape St Vincent, um, he received a shard of wood striking him in the right flank or right groin, which caused terrific bruising. And this bruising cut off the blood supply to an area of muscle. And uh, I think he had a sort of uh, 
lumbar or uh, just superior to the groin hernia through which bowel uh, protruded occasionally. He probably wore a sort of corset to keep it back in place, but he did complain about that in his life. Then uh, at uh, Tenerife, uh, a musket shot from a Spanish gun uh, injured his, his right arm and he had an amputation above the elbow by uh, uh, Surgeon Eshelby on HMS Theseus. And then uh, at the Nile, he received a, a fragment uh, of, of Langridge, which is a, a metal debris shot from a, a French gun, which uh, cut him on the, over, over the right eye, over his injured eye. And uh, there was a flap of skin that probably fell down a little, but bleeding obscured his vision, and he thought he was going to die after this. But in fact, there was no skull fracture, no retrograde amnesia, uh, he was instantly conscious, and his um, his wound was sutured up by the surgeon on the all-op deck. And then, of course, finally, we have the fatal wound of his chest at Trafalgar. So those are the six injuries that uh, affected him during his career. Mick, my immediate response to all of those lists of injuries is that Nelson, he must have been in bits by the, by the end of his life. I mean, do you think people realise just how physically demanding... Um, being a naval officer in the wars against France actually was? Probably most of the British population hadn't understood all his injuries because they weren't written about or recorded in great detail. A lot of it was was private. Um, but <clears throat> I think that uh, uh, one has to remember that at these times uh, an attack of influenza or attack of dysentery or childbed fever would soon end your life. And these men were very used to early death. The average age of a Matalo in 1805, I think, was about 42 years. So mm. they were used to suffering and death and, depri uh, and deprived living, um, whereas we are not. We have great expectations. Whether they were tougher than us, I guess they were, because the, the work on a ship or the, on, in the fields was physically very demanding. Um, but no, I don't think most people realised what he'd been through in terms of his injuries and illnesses until much later in history. Yeah. I, I, the, his hernia I've always been interested in. This is, this is what he received at the Battle of St Vincent from a piece of uh, a flying debris, a, a, spl a splinter, but it was probably a, a foot-long piece of wood. Um, and he, he described it as trifling to his wife, but we also know it was the size of, of, of a fist... So if you yeah. imagine having a little hernia and how sore a small, like a 10p piece hernia might be, his was the size of a fist. Um, and um, th that must have been incredibly uncomfortable. Do we know which were the injuries that troubled him the most? Well, yes, there was that. Uh, and of course, people forget that he went into urinary retention after this injury, which either means that his kidney was damaged and bled or his bladder was injured and bled and he had clot retention of urine. But he overcame that. He managed, fortunately, to pass his urine without catheterization. But that painful bulging the size of a fist, he did occasionally complain of in his letters during his life. Uh, I think he must have worn some sort of bandage around his uh, waist to keep it in place. You could put a pad over the affected area to keep it in, what we call it these days a truss. Um, so that was his hernia. It did occasionally. Fortunately, it never obstructed. He never got bowel obstruction. Um, 
But he did, after his amputation in 1797, get severe neuropathic pain after the removal of his arm because whether or not Eshelby and his assistant Ramonier uh, failed to see that a, a suture ligature around the brachial artery had included part of the median nerve is uncertain. There's no doubt that some surgeons would include a nerve at some times during this era uh, to prevent bleeding from the surface of the nerve, which can be quite uh, troublesome. Um, I think his failing vision uh, added to his uh, already damaged right eye as things went on, particularly between the 1803-1804 Mediterranean uh, times, and also the hypersensitivity of his forehead. He, if, you, if you look at some of the pictures of Nelson, his hat is distinctly off his right forehead. And, of course, he complained a lot of headaches after his um, uh, head injury uh, suffered in the Battle of the Nile. So those were the things that troubled him prior to death, mainly. There's a, there's a pub near me, Mick, uh, called, in Topsham called the Lord Nelson, and they advertise their goods by saying, for food and drink that won't cost you an arm and an eye, <laughs> rather <laughs> than an arm and a leg, which I always thought was very good. Um, well, the... No, I was just going to say that it's interesting that the Court of Examiners at the Royal College of Surgeons, which I had the privilege to lead at one stage, were responsible for awarding pensions. And their criteria were simple, the loss of an eye or equivalent or the loss of a, le a limb. But you didn't get two pensions. As far as I know, Nelson only got his uh, pension for his eye, which was pretty generous. Uh, but I don't think he got a pension again for the loss of his arm. No, it's a really good point. It was a really good point whether they added up. Uh. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, I mean, he managed to survive this long, which, in having listed all the injuries, does seem to have been a bit of a miracle that he was still standing at Trafalgar. How old was he when he died? Well, he was only 47, which is, uh, what, five years younger than Wellington was at Waterloo, so it gives you some idea. So... Uh, many men would have died at this age. Officers tended to live longer for obvious reasons, their cleanliness, their better food, their better medical treatment and so forth. Yeah. 
Well, let's let's fast forward then to Trafalgar. What were the what were the circumstances of Nelson's final uh, wounding, the injuries? Well, he was of course situated on the most exposed part of, of, of a warship. That is on the upper deck. He was on the quarter deck, and he was wearing as admirals would and did the dress coat of a senior officer with all its uh, medals and awards and so forth. So he could have been a target if he was seen. Now, um, around three, well, about half to three quarters of an hour after Victory crossed the combined enemy line, uh, Victory became soon entangled with the rigging of a French 74 called the Redoutable. And uh, he was pacing the quarterdeck with Hardy, as they turned away from a companionway, Hardy noticed the victory was uh, that uh, uh, on the deck of the victory that Nelson was no longer there, and uh, probably a random shot because with movement and smoke, it, it's tempting to think it wasn't an aimed shot, but it could have been. Uh, uh, rang out from the mizzen top of the Redoutable, which was really above the quarter deck, uh, and. Um, uh, the ball was fired from about 20 metres, the mizzen top of the Redoutable, at an angle of about 40 degrees up and penetrating um, the left side of uh, Nelson's body. But it was only 11 degrees off the lateral line. So in other words, it came in very much from the side into his chest. Now, if we look at the ballistics of this wound, assuming that the French musket was reasonably loaded with decent powder... The force of this ball striking Nelson's chest was around 200 joules. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's around twice the force required to break a man's thigh bone with a musket ball. So it was a powerful strike, and that makes it almost 100% certain that the track of the ball was a straight one. In other words, the ball wasn't deflected when it went into the chest. Now, we confirmed the track of the ball years ago by placing a skeleton the same height as Nelson on the spot where he fell, and we got a cherry picker, and we got a chap with a, uh, um, a musket which was uh, laser-loaded, and we uh, tracked the um, shot through his body and then placed a plastic rod, and it was indeed a straight line when you look at the anatomy and the track of the ball as described later. So that was interesting. And that was, well, these were the circumstances of his final wounding. What was the nature of the wound itself? What do we know about it? Well, there'd be a small entry wound as the ball passed uh, in front of the shoulder, uh, entering the chest, taking with its tiny fragments of epaulette and and, uh, coat with it. It broke the second and third ribs. It descended into the left thorax passing through two large segments of the left lung. And this would, of course, cause air and blood to leak into the chest cavity. The ball then smashed through the spinal column, breaking up the sixth and seventh vertebrae, and the spinal cord was divided, and then the missile exited the chest uh, and went on to come just to lie below the right shoulder blade or scapula. So that was the track of the ball. I mean, he, he then didn't, well, he didn't die immediately. He survived for three and a quarter hours. What was the, the clinical progress of the Admiral over that period? Well, he knew that he'd received a fatal wound, and this was acknowledged by both himself and William Beatty, his surgeon on victory, 
and he recognised the effect of the traumatic spinal cord transection and consequent paraplegia because he'd witnessed a sailor suffering from this problem during re the return part of the recent chase of the enemy combined fleet uh, uh, back and fro across the Atlantic. So he suffered much pain from his spinal wound, which radiated around the chest wall, uh, and he had no sensation or movement below the line of his nipples. He was increasingly having bouts of faintness and weak, weakening from the loss of blood with decreasing flow to his brain. Um, his pulse became weak, thin and rapid. He complained of blood gushing into his chest, which uh, in fact was blood uh, fluid level in his chest sloshing around within the air blood space in his cavity. He became extremely anxious about the progress of the battle and later of the care that the nation would take of Emma Hamilton and his daughter and prayed for a victory and how many ships he'd taken and so forth. But as hypovolemic shock became more evident, Nelson became fainter, pale uh, and... Um, uh, slightly sweaty. What treatment was he given? What was he given to manage it? Well, to be honest, very little. In fact, he was made comfortable on a pile of sails, um, forward in the all-op deck, and was supported by Walter Burke, the purser. Um, and with the pain from his spine radiating around the chest wall, he asked for his chest to be rubbed by um, the, the the ship chaplain, the Reverend Alexander Scott. So his pain was only managed as a form of, by a form of counter-irritation, uh, not by uh, adequate analgesics. He didn't seem to receive any opiates. Severely traumatised patients uh, became very thirsty. He was given lemonade and cordial to drink. Cordial was a mixture of wine and water. Um, I was surprised that he didn't get any opiates because they don't always uh, cloud your, your judgment at all. I've had quite heavy doses of morphia and they you know, it, you can still think pretty clearly. But I think he possibly refused this because he didn't want his judgment and sensorium clouded at such a critical uh, event as this. So the treatment was minimum, well, quite surprising, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very surprising. I mean, what, I don't want to criticise, but what do you think might have been done better at these times? Well, I think he, he should have had some laudanum. Uh, the trouble is morphia was not isolated in pure form. Uh, well, it had only been recently isolated in pure form. I think it was about 1804 in Germany. So the dose was difficult, but he could have had some uh, laudanum, I'm sure, or opiate. Um, you could say that he could have had a trocar and cannula, which is a silver tube with a metal introducer inside it with a sharp tip placed into his chest to drain off air and blood, and that would have eased his breathing. And uh, there is one possible reason why Beatty might not have done that. He might not have had the kit, although it was available at this time. But uh, if you drain off the blood, it sometimes continues because if you leave the blood building up to a degree in the chest and then the blood pressure falls, the bleeding eases off. And if you continue to let the blood out, this effect is not seen. But really, at these times, little else could have been done. So my criticism is, is minimal, really. Yeah. I mean, with I, I, the one thing I keep coming back to is, is I'm just surprised he survived that long uh, with with yeah. such major injuries to his chest and his spine and, and all of that internal bleeding. So, how did he survive for that long? 
Well, um, if I can sort of go forward a bit, um, Beattie described the main left main pulmonary artery has, having been injured or a, a major branch of it, and I think he would have succumbed sooner from haemorrhage because although these are very low-pressure vessels, it, it's a huge vessel and the bleeding would have ended his life quick, quickly. But if you look at the angle um, of the passage of the musket ball at around 11 to 15 degrees off the lateral, I think the ball passed behind the pulmonary ligament, which contains these major vessels. Therefore, it wasn't a, a very major vessel that had been divided. But of course, Beattie had to be fair and give a reason for death, and he did so quite correctly. Nelson died of blood loss from injuries, you know, bleeding from the chest wall and his, his lungs and so forth. Uh, he gave his reason that such a large vessel damaged so near the heart um, would have been fatal, but that's very non-physiological. One can't accept that. And Bleaty did not have the information that we have today. Uh, and, of course, uh, bleeding occurred mainly from blood vessels around the ribs, or the damaged vertebral column, and, of course, from smaller lung vessels. Um so how can we explain his death in modern terms with the contemporary information available? Yeah, well, I think this is a, a, a very interesting exercise and one that's often done by military medical historians. We know that he died of blood loss and his symptoms and the post-mortem evidence showed all this. And we know the track of the ball. Uh, but we do know also that if you look at plenty of contemporary accounts of army and navy personnel who suffer non-exiting chest wounds, they do survive, a high proportion of them, uh, with trouble along the way, of course. But the thing is, the difference here is that Nelson's spinal cord was transected. Now, with the cord run nerves that control the calibre of arteries and veins. If these nerves are destroyed, then the blood vessels cannot contract and shut down, so diminishing the capacity of the circulation. And the advantage of that is that blood can be diverted away from muscles, bowel, skin, and thus enabling blood to go to the heart, brain and kidneys to preserve life. Now, when Beattie opened the chest at post-mortem, he discovered the straight track of the ball. He observed that Nelson's organs were generally healthy, but he was surprised at the lesser amount of blood in the chest cavity than he had expected. Now, it's undoubtedly that Nelson did die from this blood loss, but had his autonomic nervous system not been damaged and he could have shut down his vessels, so compensating for this blood loss, which would have ceased, he might well have survived. So it was the combination of moderate blood loss, which could not be compensated for because of the spinal cord injury, that he died. Mm. Here's a question for you. I'm not sure many people consider this. What what would his life have been like had he survived? Well, quite honestly, I think utterly miserable. He'd have been wheelchair bound with intermittent frequent catheterization, would have led to repeated urinary tract infections, eventual renal failure and death. His bowel function would have been disturbed. He would have got constipation. And soon enough, he'd have de developed stinking ulcer ulcerated areas on his buttocks and legs. He would have gone through weight loss and malnourishment and no doubt extreme depression uh, would not have given him the survival that he would have been prepared to endure. No, that's profoundly shocking, isn't it? 
What would have been his management today? Well, at the scene of the injury, there are a high proportion of paramedical support would have been available. Incidentally, it's interesting that 10% of Matalos in the Navy uh, were taught tourniquet control even then. But th this support would have dressed his wounds, pressed on the injury, probably stabilised his back when they realised that he was paraplegic, and he would have been moved to a non-fixed-wing aircraft, a Chinook or whatever, and there he would have been given um, an analgesic, ketamine or opiates, an IV drip set up, his airway protected, and his spinal image uh, managed by immobilisation. They would have inserted a chest drain and watched the bleeding, because if that continued or became heavier, then you could hand him over to a, a general or chest surgeon who would have carried out a thoracotomy to control the bleeding, repair any damage, uh, etc. His paraplegia would have been managed at a specialist centre to protect his skin, his muscles, his bladder and his psyche, with no doubt massive efforts put into rehab. And there would have also been, of course, intensive support for any residual PTSD. Mm. Do you think it was uh, better that he died? Undoubtedly. And he died at a time that gave his uh, legend and heroism the status that he enjoys today. Not something that belongs to the poor old Duke of Wellington, perhaps, with a different personality living to a much longer age and getting into political strife. Undoubtedly, if Nelson had survived, I think he would have been in significant trouble with his domestic situation. Uh, but uh, who knows? Yeah, no, I, I think I agree agree with that. Uh, he, he was um, very talented at getting himself into muddles when it came to, <laughs> to, to politics and relationships. And with, with no, no fleets to manage and no enemy to bring down, I think he might well have... Um, waged war against himself and would have won. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Mick, thank you so much for talking to me today. Now, if you enjoyed that, please make sure you hop over to the website of our great and esteemed colleagues at the Navy Records Society. Their website is navyrecords.org.uk, where members can read Mick's recent article on Nelson's death, which includes William Beatty's account of Nelson's post-mortem. Otherwise, do please follow us, the Society for Nautical Research, on social media. In particular, please seek out the Mariner's Mirror podcast on YouTube, where you will find an ever-growing library of the most wonderful, innovative videos presenting our maritime past in entirely new ways. Please spread the word about the podcast, please tell your friends, but above all, please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much, but your subscription fee will help support this podcast, will help publish the Mariner's Mirror journal, will help preserve our maritime heritage and as a paying member you get to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. What a treat that is. And you can find everything we do now and have done in the past at snr.org.uk.